Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Boy, if you came out for the first time, we're so grateful for you doing that. I know that's kind of a step to go into a new place. Thanks for doing that. If you're joining us on, online also, thanks for being with us. Well, if you've been, heard me speak before, you know I went to Texas A&M, 1979, my sophomore year. Not a good year for the Aggies in football. Five and five, no bowl game. This is before the proliferation of bowl games. You think the reason to play the final game is gone. No, 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 you would be so wrong. Because the final game is against the University of Texas. That's our rival. If Texas wins, they go to the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. If they lose... They go to the Sun Bowl in El Paso. The Aggies now have a reason to play. Sugar Bowl is more prestigious than the Sun Bowl, but the bigger deal is the Texas alums have to change their plans for New Orleans and go to El Paso. I mean, we are fired up for this game. I have a Friday class, the day before the game. It means Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We have a test scheduled the next Wednesday. The prof on Friday says, here's what I think is going to happen. I think the Aggies are going to win tomorrow. They're going to cancel class on Monday. Monday. We're still having the test Wednesday. I'll be here Monday at 9 if you want me to work problems. But win or lose, the game's still playing. Well, this thing's packed out. Freshmen can't even watch it. They have to watch in closed circuit TV. I'm a sophomore. I am in temporary seating that is down on the field. We win. The gun goes off. I'm five steps moving towards the exit. And what do I hear over the PA system? Faculty and students in celebration of the great Aggie victory. No class on Monday. What are we celebrating? We wrecked Texas season. I mean, that is, all right. that is, that is worth celebrating. We wrecked their season. Isn't that how we roll in the world, though? We get opposition. People against us. People have made us mad. When they go down, when they experience misfortune, yes, yes. But if we follow Jesus, Jesus says that's the wrong response. There's a different response that he demands, that his sacrifice demands. And I want to talk about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to go all the way through this <laughs> chapter and wrestle with the question, how should we respond to this misfortune of our opposition? How should we respond to the misfortune of our opposition? If you haven't been with us, we started in the book of 1 Samuel back in about 1964, I think. No, we've been in there a while. And uh, what we're seeing is Israel is transitioning from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. Uh, for security reasons, they decide we need a king. Because we're getting some invasion from these Philistines. And God said, you don't really need a king. You need me. No, we need a king. And there's this argument back and forth. And God finally says, okay, so you know what you really need. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a king. And you're going to find out it doesn't go so well. So the first king's name is a guy named Saul. At his anointing, Saul, it's real clear. But you don't have absolute authority here. You, you operate under my autonomy. And Saul didn't get that message. And so after a couple times, God said, we're done. We're moving on to a guy named David. That's David who dropped Goliath with the, the stone. That David. Uh, and, and I don't know if Saul knows he's been anointed as king, but David's popularity, he is stock on the rise. And Saul is threatened. And for 10 to 13 years, scholars kind of debate on a couple things. He is chasing David around trying to kill him. And that's causing all kinds of grief problems for David. In the process, David's faith is being built. In the process, David is failing. And, and so it goes. 
Finally, we saw last week that that chase came to an end. Saul was killed in battle. And that's where we are. And that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. says this. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. This detail is put in there so we know David was nowhere near when Saul was killed. If you weren't with us, there were two times that David had Saul dead to rights and his soldiers said, man, run him through. And David said, I can't do that because that's God's anointed. So David is nowhere near the place where Saul dies. Verse 2, on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Torn clothes, dust on your head, a sign of grief. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. He recognizes Though David hasn't been anointed, he's royalty. David's a big deal. Now David sees this and he's concerned. When you see clothes torn and you say dust in the hair, that's got your attention. If you're a parent, it's 11 o'clock at night. The police officer pulls into your driveway and slowly makes his way up to your door. You're concerned. What's up, officer? That's the gist what happens in verse 3. And David said to him, from where, where do you come? You got bad news. He said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Now David's anxious. Verse 4. How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the, <clears throat> from the battle. And also many people have fallen and are dead. And, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. This hammers David. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And when someone you cherish, someone you love, is reported dead, it's, it, it can't be. Are, are you sure? Are you sure? That's the gist of verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his Jonathan are dead? I, I can't believe it. Are, do, do, have you verified that? Do you know that? That's really hard to take. Well, verse 6 through 10, the guy's going to say. The young man who told him said, by chance... I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and he said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And he answered, I'm an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for the agony, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood behind, beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. A couple thoughts. Notice David isn't taking the signs of the kingship. It's, it's being given to him. But the bigger thing worth noting is this guy's lying. If he was with us last week, or if you read 1 Samuel 31, you know that's not the way it went down. Saul got hit with a spear, said to his armor bearer, run me through. Armor bearer said, I can't do that. So Saul fell on his sword. So why is this guy lying? He wants favor with David. David's stock on the rise. And, you know, if, if you see I did you a favor, maybe you can kind of push my career along or something. So here's it's not the main point of what I want to talk about today. But here's one question I want to ask you. You ever um, kind of just, I mean, you, we wouldn't lie, right? We wouldn't lie. But, I mean, you, you embellished, just scratch the truth a little bit to impress someone. Okay, I have, if you haven't done that. So you... You do that because you want them to think you're a little smarter, a little funnier, a little braver than you are. 
let's hang on. Let's see what that, where that light gets this guy. Because sometimes we don't know what we're stepping into with our desire to be approved by others and to lie to get it. We'll come back to that, see how that works out for that fellow. Verse 11, then David, now that he knows, Saul and Jonathan are dead, took hold of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. And for the, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Okay, I get Jonathan. Jonathan is David's friend. Made a covenant. Jonathan gave us, I, I get grieving for Jonathan. But Saul? Saul's been trying to end David's life for 13 years. Saul has been the one that has kept David from being king. Back in the day, Saul was a little whacked, and so David would come in and he would play his harp for him, and Saul would take his spear and two times tried to pin him against the wall with a spear and chased him around and all over the place. And you're grieving? This guy's death? Why would you do that? Because you care more about the name and reputation and things of God than you do yourself. This Saul was God's anointing. Yeah, he was a pain for David. But David cared more about the reputation of God than he did his own comfort. And so he's grieving Saul's death. And therein, I think, lies the answer to our question. How do we respond to the misfortune of our opposition? We should grieve. We should grieve over the misfortune of our opposition. But I don't know about you, but that's not how I typically roll. Somebody's been giving me a hard time. I'm kind of glad, good, they, they got what they deserved. But think about it, if, if we are celebrating somebody's misfortune, we must really hate that person, shouldn't we, doesn't it? I mean, things go bad for you and I, I'm glad? I must hate your guts. Because you did something to me back in the day. Well, Jesus had something to say. I think those responses are tied. Jesus had something to say about hating our enemies. It was in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said. You've heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's wrong, Jesus says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, that's kind of what David's living out here. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, for if you and I love those who love us, Love those who love you. What reward do you have? Hey, even the tax collectors do the same. Even the people who don't know that God do that. You're no different. You're not setting yourself apart as God's person. For if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Rhetorical question. Do not even the Gentiles who don't know God, don't they do the same? If that's how you roll, if that's how, how I roll, then God isn't making any kind of difference in our lives. We need to be grieving this misfortune of our opposition because we love them. We don't grieve the misfortune of our loved ones. See, the way we respond to those who are in opposition 
Tell us about our character. Tell us about where we are with God. And it gives credibility or denies credibility to the gospel. This thing you believe, is it real in your life? Is it real in my life? Let's see how it plays out with opposition. Here's where this is super challenging for me. Sometimes opposition is right in the church. That perfect, man, they just. So before I was here, it was a small church in Arizona. The three guys that were the elders and I had, had a different, we had a different vision of what the church was supposed to be. I thought I'd clarified that in the interview. It was a bumpy couple of years. I had trouble not seeing those guys as opposition and wanting them to go down. If you've heard me speak before, you know it got so challenging. One guy, we, my wife and I had to give a code name in our home. We called him the Flintstones. Because we didn't want our four-year-old son repeating the name. Referred to them as Fred and Wilma rather than Barney and Jan. Well, when we hold on to that kind of attitude towards our opposition, we are discrediting. When we talked about being Christ in our community, we're doing the opposite of that. We're discrediting the gospel. We're saying it's really not real. So here's what went down when I left. They got a new pastor in, and uh, he started meeting people in the community. They started coming to church, and they started becoming members. And he had a different vision than those same elders. And, and they realized what was going on as a congregational church. So they were going to come for a vote every January. And they were getting enough people that they were going to vote new elders in. So they got his resume out and they thought, oh, and again, this was reported to me by people there. Uh, you lied right there. You're fired. No, I'm not. Yeah, you're fired. You're done. He said, I'm coming Sunday to preach. No, you're not. So he did. So he's there. I'm going up in the pulpit. The elders say, you can't do that. And they ended up calling out the service to police to figure this out. So here, Mr. Police Officer, here's our, here's our church documents who says who's in charge here. Okay, you'll have to leave. Well, let me ask you, how'd that play Monday morning in the lunchroom in the Sierra Vista Police Department? What did that say about Jesus? And that, that pastor wasn't done, apparently. He filed suit in district court in Tucson. And it worked its way. And I, I don't know, someplace it died up there. But I don't know, that got in front of some judge, didn't it? Here's my question. Who's your opposition? Don't be rooting for their downfall. Don't be hating those people. Maybe they're here. For the sake of the gospel, you need to love them. Maybe, maybe they're not in this church. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're family. How about that? You know, that, that brother, that sister, that crazy aunt. You know, you know who I'm talking about, don't you? And there are times you have to draw boundaries, but don't be rooting for their downfall. You'd be loving those people. Or somebody at work, man, they're just not pulling weight. Now, I know these things are, sometimes they're hard to apply. And many of you are thinking this right now. I'm watching the Super Bowl this afternoon, and the team I don't like, they're driving and they fumble the ball. And my team recovers it. Can I celebrate that or am I celebrating their misfortune? How do I resolve that? <laughs> I want you to catch Blake Johnson, our worship pastor. He'll have an answer for you that. You catch him after service. He'll be glad to answer that for you. He won't answer. Sometimes he's thorny. These things are thorny, working them out. Verse 13, we go back. David's still grieving. David said to the young man who told him, 
where are you from? And he answered, I'm a son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. How'd that little lie to get David's favor work out for him? Friends, it ain't worth stepping into a lie. We don't know what we're stepping into to win somebody's favor. David's still grieving. Uh, verse 17 and 18. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the songs of Judah, the song of the bow. Behold, it was written in the book of Jashar. They had a plan to lament. That's a good idea. When we go through grief, we suffer loss. There are a number of ways to do that. We have a course called Grief Share. That meets on Saturdays right now. We run it throughout the year. But it's, it's a video course, but it's people who are experts on grieving. If you're in the midst of that, I'd consider checking that out. You can check it out online. You can call the office. But it is a, we, a way to grieve, and we need to grieve when we suffer loss. Again, this is poetic. This is all poetic. Verse 19 uh, he is David's despairing how the mighty have fallen. Verse 19, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the, have the mighty fallen? Verse 20, David doesn't want the Philistines knowing this because they're going to celebrate it. There's nothing worse than suffering loss and having your opposition celebrated. Tell, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters... Of the uncircumcised will exalt. Let me go back to that November day in 1979. We win the game. And we're just happy Aggies walking off celebrating our victory. There were people from the University of Texas who weren't so happy with our celebration. And they gave us unkind hand gestures to show they didn't appreciate our celebration. Uh, verse 21. David curses the mountains where, where Saul died. O mountains of Gilboa. Let not dew or rain be on you, nor the fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Saul and Jonathan died there. David's pronouncing a curse. May you never grow on that land. Verses 22 and 23, he remembers the accomplishments of Saul and Jonathan on the battlefield. For the blood... Of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Verse 24, David calls the women of Israel to weep. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who poured ornaments of gold on your apparel. At this point, David turns his grief towards Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan, they, they had a covenant together. Jonathan was Saul's son and spared or risked his life for David. Jonathan was willing to give up succession as the king because he knew David would be next. John, David's really grieved at the loss of Jonathan. Here's what he says. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. For I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. For you've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Some people would suggest this was an erotic love. It was not. It was one man committed to another. The mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. 
It was 41 years ago in January that my life really began to turn. And it was a relationship. It was a guy I lived with. We studied together. We went to the Bible. uh, We went to eat together at the cafeteria. And we would come home at night. And he would take out his Bible and teach me the word of God. And my life began to change. And for the last 41 years, to varying degrees, I have had male friends who have discipled me, who have mentored me, who have encouraged me, who have strengthened me. And I don't know where I'd be. That has been God's tool to get me where I am today. Relationship. Not surprisingly, with a relational God is the essence of life. You know, and and when we celebrate the misfortune of some other human being, that's the antithesis of relationship, isn't it? That shows how far we are from God. I think it was Lincoln who said, the way I can get rid of my enemy is make him my friend. You got that idea from Jesus. We'll, 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 we'll pray for our enemies. We'll love them. We'll, we'll, we'll pray for those who persecute us. Why would we want to do that? Recently, Harvard University completed an 84-year study on happiness. Number one predictor of happiness Net worth. Nope, it's not it. Position in the company. No, it's not it. Success in sports or band or what? No, it's not it. Winning football team in the Super Bowl. No, not it. I saw an interview with Dr. Ralph Waldinger. He's a psychiatrist at uh, Harvard, and he was on the tail end of this. I didn't want to quote him directly. Here's what he said. Number one predictor of happiness in life are those people who are, and I quote, active in keeping up their relationships. People who are intentional about their relationships are the happiest in life. Now, I want you to fill in the blank for me. Here's what gets in the way of us relationships. It's Andy, I'm so, I'm so, so, I'm so, what am I? I'm so, so, what? What am I? So what? I'm, that's it. I'm so, I'm so busy, 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 busy busy. I don't have time for people. My question is, what are you doing? What are you so busy doing? Because you're missing out on the number one predictor of happiness in life. If you're too busy for relationship, please reevaluate your schedule. Harvard and Jesus would say you're missing out. This is ultimately about the value of relationship. I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to stay there. I'm not going to rejoice at your misfortune because Jesus has called me to something different. And we're supposed to be different. That's the cycle. We're enemies and you go bad and I cheer about that. Then I go bad and you cheer. Where does it end? Jesus said it ends with me because we're different. We're not rejoicing over the misfortune of our opposition. Why? Because we're moving from hate to loving those people. How? By the power of the gospel. By the one who got nailed to the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Even as they jeered him and spit in his face. Could we take hold of that, Jesus? That our relationships and our life would be different. Movie Invictus. Is set in South Africa. It's the story of Nelson Mandela, who, by the way, spent 27 plus years in prison. 
as president of the country, a black man, choosing to support the all-white rugby team. Now, before that movie plays out early in the scene, uh, some men on the security force come to him and say, uh, President Mandela, you just hired some people from President de Klerk, and he was the former president who, who ran the opposition, and, and Mandela said, yeah, you guys said you needed people, and I thought, they're trained, why not? And they said, do you, do you remember, those were the guys who were putting us in prison and killing us and all this kind of stuff? Mandela said, I know. Remember, he spent 27 years. I know. But he says to the people, we got to move forward. We can't keep doing this. That's a leader. I mean, you got a reason to hate. And to, I mean, 27 years in this little box of a cell. That's a leader. we got to move forward. Well, as great as Mandela was, and he was great, we got a, a leader who's infinitely greater. You know what his name is? His name is Jesus. And when this hate stuff and celebrating people's misfortunes, he said, we, we can't keep doing that. We can't keep doing that. We've got to move forward. Could we take hold of this, Jesus? That we might live and love differently? That we would never think of celebrating the misfortune of our opposition. Because we're in the process of moving from hating to loving them. By the power of the gospel. Will we bring credit to the gospel? To the name of Jesus. Because the way we treat our opposition. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven. We're grateful for this Jesus. Who died for us. And died that we might live differently. Um, Lord. Would we be people who put our agendas aside. And our feelings. And, our, and we trust you to be good and just. And we're just not going the way of hate. We're not celebrating anybody's misfortune because we love people empowers jesus we can't do that in our own pray in christ's name amen so we're going to move to a time of communion now so if you're a person leading the table if you would go up to that table i would appreciate it uh just a couple thoughts about communion um first you don't have to be a member of north point to celebrate communion with us just ask that you be a follower of jesus if you're not sure what that means please feel free to watch no need to be embarrassed um Second thing, we don't believe this becomes a literal, and body, literal body and blood of Jesus. We believe this is a memorial. We're remembering Jesus for the sacrifice he made. Um, and yeah, this is just remembering him. Now, in a minute when I get done praying or, yeah, praying for communion, the ushers will d direct you and you can go. Now, here's the hardest thing about communion. The hardest thing about communion is this little, this little deal right here. This little way, yeah, it's really hard. We're going to offer a, a four-hour class on it in about a month or so. But there are, there are two parts. There's a part you've got to fold back, and that's where the wafer is. And they'll probably have you take the wafer first. And then you pull the second part back, and that's the juice. And if you get frustrated up there and you get one you like, don't like, just throw it down, step on it, and pick up another one. It'll be fine. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and we'll begin to celebrate communion. Father in heaven, we're, again, grateful for this memorial, Jesus, who died for us. Um, Lord, that we be mindful of you, your sacrifice for us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.